My name is Father Isaac Bradshaw. I'm an Anglican priest and an educator. And for as long as I can remember, I've been fascinated by the weird and the anomalous. Whether it's a deep dive into number station or exploring stories from the paranormal or just ruminating on everyday things and events that don't quite add up. But I never heard how Christian theology interacts with the oddities of our universe. So I decided to do it myself. Welcome to the church at Montauk. Way out in the Georgia countryside stands a large granite monument. Not the usual monument to heroes and heroines of wars past, but a monument dedicated to the future. In June of 1979, just outside the tiny town of Elberton, Georgia, a man going by the name of R.C. Christian walked into the Elberton Granite Finishing Company and made an unusual request. A monument was to be built, funded by a small group of patriotic Americans. It would be large, quite large. Five slabs of 19-foot-tall granite, arranged in a pattern reminiscent of Stonehenge, Holes and slots cut into the slabs would correspond with astronomical events like noon on every day of the year or the annual movement of the sun. This, in and of itself, would not be very mysterious at all. But this is where it gets a little weird. Carved into the slabs are ten guides for propelling humanity into an age of reason. Those guides are, first, maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Two, guide reproduction wisely, improving fitness and diversity. Three, unite humanity with a living new language. Four, rule passion, faith, tradition, and all things with tempered reason. 5. Protect people and nations with fair laws and just courts. 6. Let all nations rule internally, resolving external disputes in a world court. 7. Avoid petty laws and useless officials. 8. Balance personal rights with social duties. 9. Prize truth, beauty, love, seeking harmony with the infinite. And number 10, be not a cancer on the earth. Leave room for nature. These 10 guides are carved in various modern languages. English, Spanish, Swahili, Hindi, Hebrew, Arabic, traditional Chinese, and Russian. Along the four sides of the capstone is written, let these be guidestones to an age of reason, written in four classical languages, Babylonian, Ancient Greek, Sanskrit, and Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now some of these seem like good sense. Others 
a little sinister. Who erected these stones? What sort of new age of reason is being anticipated? Are they, as Yoko Ono described, a stirring call to rational thinking? Or as Wired Magazine reported, the Ten Commandments of the Antichrist? On this week's episode, The Georgia Guidestones. If you had to pass on important, life-giving information to future generations, how would you do it? Is it a book? Would you carve it into stone? Maybe create a kind of religious fervor or priesthood that carried that knowledge forward. What if you had to anticipate some sort of future calamity? What if the knowledge you had to pass on was so important it could prevent the deaths of untold numbers of future people? and prevent an environmental catastrophe? What if you had to pass on that knowledge for 24,000 years, almost five times longer than the written history of humanity itself? Two years after Mr. Christian walked into the Elberton Granite Finishing Company, a collection of nuclear engineers, futurists, and linguists got together for the Human Interference Task Force. Summoned by the Department of Energy and Defense Contractors, the task force attempted to solve a lingering nuclear question. The nation's fission power plants and the manufacturing of the Cold War nuclear stockpile had produced a nuclear waste in the form of highly radioactive metals with extremely long half-lives, some as long as 24,000 years. So what do you do with it? By 1980, this material was simply stored on nuclear sites in casks, presenting environmental and national security issues. Then, a solution was found. A deep geological repository called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant would bury the waste deep underground, where the natural salt deposit would seal in around the casks of waste. But that didn't solve all the problems. No matter how deep you bury it, how do you tell somebody 24,000 years from now not to dig in a certain spot? And if you do dig there, what's buried there will kill you and everyone you know. The task force called this work nuclear semiotics. Several ideas were floated. Linguist Thomas Seabock suggested an atomic priesthood, a group of men and women who would carry and preserve the knowledge of the nuclear material, its location, and the dire warnings to stay away from the repository. Another slightly more complex solution involved genetically engineered cats that would change color once dangerous levels of radiation were encountered. And through story and fables, the warning of a cat changing color would be embedded into a culture existing tens of thousands of years away. Neither one of these made the cut. And in the end, the group decided on a clear 10-line message. This 
This place is a message and part of a system of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards the center. The center of danger is here, of a particular size and shape, and below us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body, and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. This was the message to be sent into the future. A method was adopted. At the center of the site, built in granite or reinforced concrete, an open four-walled structure would house an information center in various languages inscribed in stone. Maps of other repositories would be included as well as scientific information about what laid beneath their feet. Pictograms of sick people and death would be inscribed on stone and scattered randomly around the site. The area of the site itself would be marked with hostile architecture. The area should look shunned desolate, uninhabited, and frightening to those who wander past. Ten Commandments, Ten Guides, Ten Warnings. The Guidestones, in some respect, represent a more positive vision of the future than the Human Interaction Task Force. Built during the height of the Cold War, the Guidestones represent a reminder of humanity's self-destructive impulses and at least one group's suggestions for making a better world. But just who is that group? Because let's face it, some of these are more than simply guides. Keep populations under 500 million? Guide and direct reproduction so that only the fittest survive? In a world of 6 billion people, that's five and a half billion people that have to go. Guiding and directing reproduction sounds a lot like eugenics. And I think we can all agree that we should avoid petty laws and useless officials, but what world court? Tempered reason gets to rule faith, tradition, and passion. What's going on here? atomic bomb was assembled at Los Alamos, a secret laboratory in New Mexico. When Dr. J.R. Oppenheimer arrived to take charge, he began to surround himself with a galaxy of outstanding scientific stars. From Los Alamos came the bomb design and treatment of many theoretical problems, yet many questions still remain unanswered. What are the secrets of this new source of power and destruction? Knowledge and information on all aspects of this new weapon are essential and can only be discovered by further testing. 
In the context of the Cold War, some of these make a degree of sense. Just four years after the Guidestones were started and two years after the completion of the task force, the world was secretly brought to the edge of destruction. NATO, the alliance of Western democracies in Europe, conducted an exercise called Able Archer, which simulated a nuclear first strike against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact alliance. In the backdrop of increased nuclear tensions, the Soviet Union began looking for signs of an impending nuclear attack, just as the United States and its allies were simulating an actual nuclear attack. In order to preempt the perceived attack, the Soviet Union placed its nuclear-armed aircraft, ICBMs in East Germany and Russia on high alert, ready to launch at a moment's notice. For two days, with NATO nearly totally unaware, the Soviet Union hovered in place, ready to send its weapons firing. A nuclear exchange between the two had potential to destroy all life on Earth. And it was seconds away. This is the historical context of the Guidestones. Avoid what is destructive and do what engenders peace and harmony. From a certain point of view, In 1614, Europe was just emerging from the Reformation. The Peace of Augsburg was unsteady and fractious between a continent divided into a Lutheran and Reformed North and a Roman Catholic South. But the settling in of even an uneasy status quo led to a birth of humanistic sciences. In the midst of this tense atmosphere in Europe, a manifesto appeared, hailing the public acknowledgement of the Fellowship of the Rosy Cross, or what would be known as the Rosicrucian Order. According to the legend, a brother CRC was born in Germany, and at the age of 16 began to travel across the Middle East and Northern Africa, learning lost and secret medicine, science and philosophy of the ancients, alchemy, astrology, theurgy, magic, all became within his domain. On his return to Europe, Brother CRC gathered a group of like-minded brothers and formed the Rosicrucian Order, dedicated to healing the sick, taking no money in return, and keeping their secrets only to initiates. Brother CRC died in secret at the age of 120, his body discovered a hundred years later in a seven-sided vault. Strange signs and diagrams and esoteric symbols were carved into the seven walls, each wall itself broken up into ten smaller walls. On his sarcophagus was written, Jesus is everything to me, by no means empty. The freedom of the gospel, the untouched glory of God, the yoke of the law. The pamphlet encouraged readers to seek to join the Brotherhood, and thousands attempted to do just that. Across Europe, the Fama Fraternitas caused a sensation. It seemed a Rosicrucian fad had broken out. A year later, another manifesto appeared, a confession of what it was that the Rosicrucian believed.
followed in 1616 by an allegorical novel called The Chemical Wedding of Christian Rosencruz. The Rosicrucians asserted that they were first and foremost Christians, followers of Christ, and that through their combined mystical knowledge and pursuit of the sciences, they were prepared to help usher in a new age of reformation in humanity. They wrote, We ought therefore here to observe well, and make it known unto everyone, that God hath certainly and most assuredly concluded to send and grant to the world before her end, which presently thereupon shall ensue, such a truth, light, life, and glory as the first man Adam had, which he lost in paradise, after which his successors were put and driven with him to misery. Wherefore there shall cease all servitude, falsehood, lies, and darkness, which by little and little with the great world's revolution was crept into all arts, works, and governments of men, and have darkened the most part of them. For from thence are proceeding an innumerable sort of all manner of false opinions and heresies, that scarce the wisest of all was able to know whose doctrine and opinion he should follow and embrace, and could not well and easily be discerned, seeing on the one part they were detained, hindered, and brought into errors through the respect of the philosophers and learned men, and on the other part through true experience. All the which, when it shall once be abolished and removed, and instead thereof a right and true rule instituted. But this age of reformation of mankind never appeared. Just two years after the chemical wedding was published, the Protestants of Bohemia threw the Roman Catholic counselors of King Ferdinand out of a window at Prague Castle. Beginning the Bohemian Revolt, and starting one of the most destructive conflicts in human history. The Thirty Years' War would serve to stamp out the fervor for the Rosicrucians, who, by different accounts, had either fled to the East or back into secrecy. The Rosicrucians failed to bring about the reform of man, and Christendom collapsed into an orgy of warfare and industrialization. But they didn't disappear, not really. Over the next 200 years or so, different groups from the Freemasons to magical groups like the Golden Dawn would align themselves with Rosicrucian ideals or assert that they were the legitimate heirs of the Rosicrucian lineage and mysteries. Even today, there exists the ancient and mystical order of the Rosy Cross, offering by male initiations into the ancient mysteries of Brother CRC. In fact, they operate one of the largest and best-known museums of Egyptology in the United States. So it's not surprising that the name of the author to the Guidestones, R.C. Christian, is likely a reference to Brother CRC, or Christian Rosencruz, and the impulse to pass along knowledge to save humanity and usher in an age of reform seems along Rosicrucian lines as well. And the lingering threat of a destructive political environment in 1614 and in 1980 is also right on target. It seems likely to me that whoever is responsible for the Guidestones held some connection to Rosicrucian thought 
or Christian esotericism at the least. Christianity has always struggled with the impulse to bring the eschaton down to earth. The apostles wanted to know with some specificity when Jesus would set up his kingdom. A close reading of the earliest gospels and the Pauline epistles sees an early church community that believes Christ's return is not only coming soon, but it is a return to earth that would be within the first generation of believers. It's an idea that becomes much more pronounced after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. Later Gospels and letters reveal a church wrestling with the idea of a much longer wait for Christ's return, organizing itself in anticipation of the passing on of Christian teaching to the next generation. In the book of Revelation, written after the Temple's destruction but before the end of the first century, John the Revelator encourages his readers to hold fast to the faith, regardless of persecution or the temptations of an empire bent on the destruction of Christianity. The twin commands of waiting expectantly for the new earth and the command to pass along the faith to new generations finally seem to merge in the construct of Christendom, an alliance between the state and the church. The state would use the sword to protect and defend the rights of the church, and the church would have the right to command souls towards salvation. The Rosicrucian manifestos were a reaction to the coercion of Christendom. In recent years, scholarship around the manifestos has revolved around the idea that the authors were a small group of Lutheran scholars and pastors, on one hand, arguing for a Christian society free of the superstitions of Rome and papal religion, and on the other, satirizing allegorical mysticism. Perhaps it's to the author's credit that their satire was so good that readers took it seriously and searched out for a non-existent mystical order. The Georgia Guidestones, then, aren't a roadmap to a new world order. They're a kind of mystical form of nuclear semiotics. It's the list of things that say, don't do that, do this. They exist simply as another set of rules, another set of warnings, another set of messages from a group of people who failed. Because the rules will always fail. There is no rule set that will bring about a new age of humanity. No clean living or rational living. No unbroken line of secret teaching and secret initiation and secret philosophy can manage it. The necessity of nuclear semiotics would suggest that even with the best rules and the passing down of learned wisdom, there is always the potential for humanity to fall into death and sin by our own choices. Christianity, of course, wrestles with this alongside every other person on the planet. 
that Christian teaching rejects the idea that a secret group of mystics and magicians can ever naturally reason their way to creating the new heavens and the new earth all by their lonesome. Even though the Rosicrucians supposedly granted their philosophy and their work and the Disciplini Arcani, or secret disciplines of Jesus and the early church, their framework puts them at odds at a key point of Christian orthodoxy. That no matter what we do, no matter what the disciplines we put on ourselves, or the rules we set up, or the philosophy and secret knowledge that we learn, none of it can bring about the culmination of human history or our own individual or collective salvation. That action is entirely by God's action in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who calls us into a community of believers, and it's Jesus who calls us to our own resurrection as sons and daughters of the living God. In Matthew 15, Jesus meets a Canaanite woman, what the modern translations call a Syrophoenician woman. She has a daughter plagued by a demon, and she begs Christ for help. He first ignores her, then rebuffs her. He has been sent to the people of Israel, not to the Gentiles. And yet, Jesus finally accepts her pleas. It's her faith in Christ, not her lineage, not carried over teaching from years past, that causes Jesus to reach out, embrace her as his own, and heal the woman's daughter. Later, Paul would elaborate on this theme, that those out on the outside are grafted into the family of God through their faith. A Christian view of the world and its future depends on this faith. Faith in resurrection, not reform. Faith in recreation, not reintegration. Faith in Jesus Christ, not in discovering the inner spiritual workings of the universe. As we wait for the final day of being truly born again and recreated in the company of all of Christ's family, we live as if that resurrection was imminent, as if this earth and planet is the same earth and planet that will be recreated and resurrected just as we are. Our guidestone, the command that Christ left us, is simple. Love one another as he loved us. To love one another sacrificially, not simply following the rules, but following a risen Savior whose rule prepares us for a new heaven and a new earth, free from military conflict, free from the threat of nuclear destruction, a new world totally free to be with our Creator. And that's the kind of promise that only a person who has lived, who has died, and who has risen again can make for us. I'm Father Isaac. That's it for this week. If you like this story, consider making a donation to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum at egyptianmuseum.org forward slash donations. And hit us up on Twitter at Montauk Church or email us at thechurchatmontauk at gmail.com. 
and stay tuned for more adventures with the church at Montauk.